Welcome to Playground Books, essays revisiting the stories I first read as a kid and loved enough to spend my recesses reading. There's a quote from Lydia Davis, a short story writer, in her collection Can't and Won't. It's alone on the page, under the title Her Geography, Illinois. In its entirety, the story reads, She knows she is in Chicago, but she does not yet realize that she is in Illinois. Come with me one step further. You're in a long, low house. The walls are warm-toned and wood-paneled, with lines that stretch up to and across the ceiling, leading you on or tying you in. In front of you is a dining table with a set of six matching chairs, high-backed, no armrests, their slotted backs running the full length from the floor to where your head would be if you sat down. Round lamps are hidden in square wall sconces, tucked up against the ceiling like a trick of geometry, and a bay window points you forward like the prow of a ship. Upon looking outside, the garden you see is fractured and divided by the stained glass windows, art glass, pieced together with parallelograms and triangles and rectangles in shades of sepia, tangerine, frost. You can see patterns, and you imagine puzzles revealed by the way the pieces fit together. You're in a kaleidoscope, and the subway tile bricks of the fireplace, the leaded window sills, the crown molding, echo and reflect each other like they're all part of the same body. Bone meets muscle meets breath. You know you are in the Roby house, but you do not yet realize that you're in the right three. This book baits its hook with the fascination of place as character, specifically the Roby house, designed by architect Frank Lloyd Wright and settled into the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, as a character in and of itself, and it plays along the edges of treating that literally. There's a definite paranormal sensibility that tinges this book, although it is ostensibly realistic fiction. It uses the idea of a captivating piece of architecture as a jumping-off point to diverge from real life by asking, what if it was in danger? before tying in the motifs of a novel by H.G. Wells, the Fibonacci number series, and many, many fish. There's a lot of ground to cover. Let's get you some context, because The Right Three is the second book in its series. It is, however, the first one I read, although its predecessor, Chasing Vermeer, is arguably better and a personal favorite. Chasing Vermeer takes place in the same neighborhood, Hyde Park of Chicago, where two kids, Petra Andali and Calder Pillay, are drawn together into a mystery when an invaluable painting, a lady writing, goes missing from a special exhibit at the nearby art institute, and the thief starts publishing clues in the newspaper. You know Vermeer, 17th century Dutch painter, from Girl with a Pearl Earring. A lady writing is another of his famous portraits of ordinary life. In the story, Petra and Calder are smart enough to value the unique ways each of them thinks and to pay attention to what look like coincidences. Together, they recover the painting and become good friends. Other important characters that come back in the right three include their sixth grade teacher, Miss Hussey, who has the vibes of the hip young art teacher who thinks spending half the year asking unanswerable questions about art is much more important than, say, spelling tests. Also, an elderly neighbor, Mrs. Sharp, who has all the history of Hyde Park and probably would not hesitate to call a child stupid. And finally, Calder's friend Tommy, who through the events of Chasing Vermeer has just recently moved away to New York, 
Tommy's new stepdad turns out to be the con man and art thief who tricked other people into stealing a lady writing under the guise of art activism, and he dies of a heart attack at the end of the book. It's a whole thing. But that means that in the sequel, Tommy is back in Hyde Park, very jealous of Calder and this new girl Petra, and wondering why everybody is so hung up on art. Here's the premise. Due to disrepair and disinterest, the Roby house is planned to be dismantled, cut apart into pieces to be shipped to different museums, which Miss Hussey and most of the Hyde Park residents find appalling. She calls it plunder in the name of salvation, or, quote, perhaps a better term is murder. The idea is that carving up a home like the Roby house, which is meant to be used and enjoyed and lived in as one indivisible piece, is tantamount to destruction, to murder if you think of the house as a dynamic, contiguous, almost living thing, the way some pieces of art feel. Petra and Calder catch on very quickly to this challenge to save the house, and Tommy will get there eventually. There are two other beats the plot hits in this setup and inciting incident phase, two discoveries. First, Petra stumbles across two copies of the same book, The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells one in a giveaway box at a local bookstore, another dropped from a passing train by a hooded, caped figure, and she finds that both have passages highlighted with the same orange pen. Second, Tommy, who now lives in an apartment behind the Roby house, goes trespassing into the garden, torn up by the start of construction, and uncovers a small stone carving of a fish. I introduced you to the characters, kind of, but in order to understand how this book is constructed, you need to know one more detail about each of them, and that's their learning styles. What language they think in, so to speak. Petra is a writer and a reader. She carries a notebook everywhere, talks about how she wants to be an author when she grows up, and examines books she's reading for insight, how to feel and think about the challenges she faces. She reads The Invisible Man across the course of the book, and large sections are excerpted for the reader along with specific quotes that she applies to events, a bit like she's reading fortunes. When she finds the first copy, the first highlighted phrase she opens to is an unheard-of piece of luck, which she takes to describe the discovery of the book. But if Petra is literature and words, Calder is all mathematics, codes and patterns. Important through the whole series, he carries a set of mathematical tools called pentominoes, each pentomino is a shape composed of a specific arrangement of five squares and labeled with the letter it resembles. There's 12 in a set, and Calder has little plastic versions of them that he carries in his pocket. They make for spatial reasoning puzzles, like trying to fit as many pieces as possible into perfect squares and rectangles. And also, he quickly realizes that when they're envisioned as three-dimensional shapes, he can recreate the geometry of pieces of the Roby house. Bear with me for the audio math, but this book, he also learns about Fibonacci numbers, which is a number series where each next number is made by adding the two that came before it. So it starts with 0, 1, 1, 2, and then 1 and 2 is 3, 2 and 3 is 5, 3 plus 5 is 8, 5 and 8 is 13, and so on. It's significant because as the series progresses, the ratio between each pair of numbers stays the same and it's the so-called golden ratio of 1.618. Fibonacci numbers and the golden ratio appear in nature, art, and, when Calder starts looking for them, 
everywhere in this book. Finally, Tommy, as the new addition to the trio, is much less academically minded than the other two, but he engages with the world as a finder and a collector. Here's a passage. He'd been picking up and organizing street gems, as his mom called them, ever since he could walk. He could spot four-leaf clovers without trying, and had at least fifty of them pressed in a film book. He had boxes filled with old ice cream sticks, buttons, movie stubs, and pieces of firecrackers. His prize collection, however, was fish, and he kept them on a special shelf. Some were bright rubber or plastic, others were postcards, carvings from Chinatown, black clayfish from Mexico, and presents people brought back from trips. A wooden zebrafish lay next to a glass flounder with one silver eye, a coconut pufferfish swelled above a tin trout, he even had a stuffed barracuda, complete with razor-sharp teeth, and a marzipan shark from Europe that was too detailed to eat. Tommy has a certain Indiana Jones vibe, if Indiana Jones was a moody 13-year-old, and that does help to bring the other two out of their patterns and brainstorming into action and realism. These differences not only make for interpersonal conflict, Tommy and Petra spend most of the book feuding, because when you're in sixth grade and your best friend has a new best friend, it can be hard to be friends with them. But also, it's tailor-made to engage readers who think differently. Petra is the easy target. A reader is going to recognize and appreciate another reader. But her form of intelligence isn't framed as superior to that of the boys, merely a different variety. People who grew up less interested in books and more interested in codes find a kindred spirit in Calder. The ones who fancy themselves self-possessed adventurers can follow Tommy's way of solving problems. It covers the broad spectrum of how people, kids, think and problem-solve, and it relishes in how fascinating and heroic that can be. It's also fit to the subject matter, because this story lives at the intersection of art, math, and literature, equally as interested in the puzzles of the mystery as in the narrative of it. In C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, he discusses a book on language, a textbook for older students. He finds this textbook objectionable on the grounds that it undermines moral value judgment, but says that it's vital to discuss because the authors are, quote, dealing with a boy, a boy who thinks he's doing his English prep and has no notion that ethics, theology, and politics are at stake. In much of the same way, both the characters in The Right Three and young readers of it think they're following along a story. A pretty good mystery, yes, but what more than that? When in actuality, they're learning and engaging with art history and mathematical theories and examining not only what can be found interesting and valuable in the world, but how to find things interesting and valuable, and what to do when other people find things interesting and valuable in a different way than you. When the class takes a visit to the Roby house, Petra and Calder see more inexplicable things, like the art glass windows flashing and shadowy figures appearing and disappearing behind them. But the goal here is in asking the questions of whether architecture can be art, what is art, and how are we supposed to engage with art. There are arguments that art should have surprises, it should make you feel better, it should make you think it shouldn't be dangerous, it should be a thing you want to live with. 
with the Roby House falling into some of these categories and not others. I'm not here to give a definitive answer to the question, what is art, which I think the book agrees with me on. When Miss Hussey sends them home for the day, telling them to research right and the house, she says, Notice all your questions as well as your answers. What you don't understand may be more valuable than what you do. It took me until college for that same idea to be actually articulated to me in a classroom. The fact that questions matter almost more than answers, and that the goal of analyzing literature shouldn't only be finding out what premise the author posed and what answer they gave, like you're uncovering a conspiracy. Because most of the time, what actually takes up space in literature are the questions and topics that the author was struggling with, that they and their culture and time period around them found important, but which they didn't necessarily have a solitary solution to. Books are written to explore questions. Sermons are written to assert answers. Lectures are somewhere in between. Depends on the lecture and how open-minded, read not arrogant, they are. Our main trio is still trying, and mostly failing, to get along. They investigate some on their own, with Petra visiting Mrs. Sharp, Tommy watching Rear Window with his mom, and Calder going to see this guy, Mr. Dare, who was a mason on the Roby House deconstruction, who fell from the roof when he said the building shook him off. Mr. Dare's great-grandfather worked on construction of the Roby House back in 1905, so he has heard stories about Wright, some of which he tells to Calder, and some of which will come back later. The kids also come up with a plan to stage a demonstration at the Roby House. Their class takes poster board versions of famous paintings to make the argument that cutting a haystack out of a Monet to package on its own, or hacking Van Gogh's The Bedroom into parts, it destroys something about how the art is understood as a whole. Petra comments that the way the jungle in Henry Rousseau's The Waterfall is painted almost seems like it's breathing, then cuts it in half and asks, do I have two pieces of art or one crime? Again, with the pointed questions more important than screaming answers. I think it's relevant to understand how much right houses feel like whole entities, the way one room flows into the next and design elements mirror each other from the outside in and from the flooring to the roof. As Balliet says in the back of my copy, although the Roby house is not currently in danger in real life, quote, the planned fate is close to what has happened to a number of famous and beautiful buildings. Hundreds of right windows and several rooms are currently in museums. Sad but true, Works of art that large and fragile are difficult to save in one piece. Like Miss Hussey, I adore museums. It's my favorite activity, maybe ever, to go to them alone, taking my own time and getting lost in exploration of art and history, science and culture. There is a life to the way exhibits are curated that I love experiencing. Once in the Victoria and Albert Museum, I found myself alone, what felt like in an entire wing, and I opened a door into a ballroom, sage green walls and bowed wooden floors. I don't remember details from a plaque or if the room was mere recreation or something similar to what is described in the book, a room cut out of its home and gift wrapped for a museum, like, as Tommy says, getting a cut-off foot in the mail. But I will say I didn't feel transported. I felt like I was trespassing in a corpse. 
The demonstration is a huge success, getting featured in the paper and stirring up debate about the Roby House's fate. The kids coin themselves the right three like the dorks they are, and pledge to continue fighting for the house as school lets out for the summer. A few days later, they see Miss Hussey in public with Mr. Dare, the mason who fell from the roof, and they secretly follow the two of them to the Art Institute. In eavesdropping and seeing exhibits on Asian art, they learn about an ancient Chinese legend. Mr. Dare says that it's about a carp that swims upriver and leaps over waterfalls and becomes a dragon, which symbolizes wisdom and power to rule. They represent the highest authority in any society. The emperor, for instance, always had dragons embroidered on his clothing. Ambitious fellow, that Wright. And to symbolize this goal, Wright carried a talisman, a small jade fish that fell out of his pocket one day during the construction of the Roby house and was never found. At least, not until self-proclaimed finder Tommy Segovia went digging around in the garden. The kids are shocked by this revelation, and Calder and Petra are thinking that the jade fish could be valuable and the key to help save the house. But Tommy pushes back. This here is the other part of how the conflict between the characters is constructed. Beyond thinking in different ways, it goes to the fact that they're coming from completely different places. Tommy wants to keep the fish to himself instead of using the money to save the Roby house, which sounds selfish and also kind of illegal considering he was trespassing when he dug the fish up. At least it does until you understand the whole story. While Petra comes from a big family and Calder at least has both his parents, for Tommy, it's just him and his mom. His dad died when he was little, and after the events of the last book, when his new stepfather turned out to be a liar and a crook and then died, he was left rootless once again. He and his mom are saving up for a house, a real home, which he hasn't had like the other two. So all of them are right. All of them have valid motivations and reasons behind their arguments. Yet that leads them to this fight where they're struggling to see each other's point of view and every potential outcome feels like a sacrifice. But then, when Tommy goes back to his apartment, he finds it a wreck, his fish collection destroyed, and the jade talisman stolen. There's more suspicious activity around the Roby house. Tommy gets hassled by an angry construction worker and sees dark figures moving around at night. They know something is going on. Beyond the danger of the house being cut up for museums, something else is at play. The kids come up with a plan to sneak into the house one evening and hide a baby monitor so that Tommy can listen in from his adjacent apartment to see what the suspicious figures are doing. While their parents think they're at a movie, they sneak back to the house and find an unlocked balcony. Finally, after most of the book, we're inside the Roby house. Tommy never forgot the feeling of first stepping into that house. The living room was empty and the ceilings low. Black and white triangles and parallelograms spanned the windows on all sides, and light from the street threw a crosshatch of shadows across the floor, as if a net had been dropped neatly underfoot. Without color outside or in, the lines between the glass became magnetic, almost powerful. A fish in a net, Tommy thought. I'm held in a net. But instead of feeling caught, he felt embraced, almost loved. It was the strangest sensation, and for several moments he stood without moving. The house had a dry, old smell that reminded him of something long ago. How odd, he thought, 
that this feels so homey. They plant the monitor, and things go wrong almost immediately when they hear footsteps. It turns out the men Tommy had seen sneaking around were there that night, too. Two construction workers, brothers and petty criminals who'd been loosening the art glass windows and preparing to steal them and burn down the Roby house so they wouldn't be missed in the destruction. They had also been the ones to steal the jade fish after seeing Tommy discover it. The kids are captured and tied up, but they trick the thieves into letting them free and escape to the roof, and the house seems to come alive. Strike Construction collapses onto one of the brothers, and the other gets shaken from the roof, like Mr. Dare in the book's opening, like the house is watching out for them. The publicity of the kids saving the house and the discovery of Wright's talisman is enough to halt the plans to cut it apart and instead to refurbish it for tours, like the Roby houses in real life. It's happy endings all around when Tommy's mom gets hired to run the new gift shop and live in a wing of the house, and in the final pages, the kids find the shape of a person coded into one of the art glass windows, tying together both the rumors of Petra's invisible man and Calder's Fibonacci patterns. I want to circle around to a few topics. One, how the book engages different types of readers, and two, as you may have noticed in the summary, the focus on coincidences and chance. At the beginning of the book, after the acknowledgments and an epigraph from H.G. Wells' Invisible Man and a section describing what pentominoes are, there's a page titled About the Artwork, A Challenge to the Reader, that begins... If you study Brett Hellquist's chapter illustrations, you will uncover many surprises. Listener, I studied them. Reading this book with my friends in humid summers, we studied these pages like we were uncovering secrets of the universe, and it really felt like we were. It's not even that complicated in retrospect. Illustrated fish hidden in the shapes and shadows of the drawings on Fibonacci-numbered chapters, stray face outlines and footprints of the invisible man, pulling together what I called motifs earlier because it's hard to analyze them as real themes. The illustrations are so perfectly fit to the concepts of this book, valuing visual art as a means of communication and discussion right alongside written words, and hooking the reader into the air of mystery, being an investigator, and giving careful attention to even the smallest details, like a grown-up version of the Find the Difference pages in doctor's office magazines that steps beyond entertainment into importance, or at least it feels like it does, specifically because of how the book values what is otherwise thought insignificant or coincidental. This is what I hitch on in rereading this book, the argument that I'm not sure I'm buying anymore. The idea that coincidences must mean something, specifically when presented in the context of a piece of fiction. This is most directly talked about when Petra goes to visit Mrs. Sharp, and they talk about ghosts and coincidences and superstition. Meanwhile, Calder is talking to Mr. Dare, who describes being on the roof that twitched like a fish to throw him off, and Tommy is watching Rear Window after having just been told that the Roby house which he can see through his own rear window, is going to be murdered. And later on, one of the criminals blinds him with a camera flash, just like in the movie, 
and all of it connects. All of it has the just-so authority of coincidences that do mean something. But of course they do, because the author put them there. She's the one who made Wright's talisman a carving of a fish, and borrowed that metaphor for Mr. Dare. And she's the one who gave the criminal a camera, and put two copies of The Invisible Man in Petra's path. What it comes down to, I think, is whether you can understand these things as coincidence or contrivance. Is it orchestrated or happenstance? Early on in the book, there's a quote referenced that I was obsessed with when I first read it because of how it felt like a puzzle. You'll have to listen to this one carefully. All there is to thinking is seeing something noticeable, which makes you see something you weren't noticing, which makes you see something that isn't even visible. This idea that attention can make magnificent the world, that hidden in the unnoticed are clues tantamount to the impossible, it's magnetic. It's addictive to the little reader lost in the ordinary, filling her brain with novels. But there's a distinction in examining chance occurrences in real life, and the details that are, for the most part, intentionally put into a story. And the pessimistic view of this quote is that it's all fake, that you're making something up by noticing it and seeing it. For clarity here, I'm going to define the term meta. When a discussion or creative work is described as meta, that means it's self-referential, talking about the idea of the work itself or the conventions of the genre which it sits in. For an example, the movie Inception can be described as metacinematic because the jobs of the different characters as they go about constructing dreams are analogous to the jobs of people making a movie. One character is filling the role of the set designer, another an actor, another the director. As the film goes about saying something about the science fiction plot of creating dreams in people's heads, it is at the same time saying something about the process of filmmaking, which is also how the science fiction plot was made. Meta here is the same stem as in metaphor and metadata, a description of a description and data about data. There is a way to read The Right Three and its preoccupation with coincidences as a commentary on writing, metafictional, especially when one of the sets of coincidences appears in a book within the story, when Petra pulls quotes from The Invisible Man. In this way, it may be saying that all elements within a book deserve your careful attention, even if they seem insignificant, because they can reveal greater meaning or, at the very least, were meaningfully written in. Then again, when talking about her books, the author Valiette has stated that she did want to show how coincidences could be meaningful even if they're inexplicable, which seems to indicate that they should be read as just that, as coincidences, that the reader should be impressed by, just as the characters are when they line up. But in that case, it's hard for me to play along with the suspension of disbelief, which is whether or not I, as the reader, can ignore the invisible hand of the author placing everything just so. When I'm reading or analyzing a book with a more formalist lens, I'm usually looking for patterns. What ideas recur, and how do they evolve or remain consistent? But when you're looking for patterns about looking for patterns, and the author is telling you that she thinks the patterns are always significant, where do we draw lines? This paradox is especially relevant for children's literature, 
because there often is greater leeway for what kind of contrivance is allowed. A common criticism of so-called kids' books is that at the end, everything gets tied up too neatly, which is warranted in the right three, as is the criticism that there may be too many loose threads to the story, which, funnily enough, sounds like the opposite. Are all these plot threads and motifs like so many ribbons tied onto themselves? And is that part of the fiction's charm or evidence of the writer's pencil marks? In this case, I'm going to have to defer to the earlier suggestion to notice my questions as well as my answers. What I don't understand may be more valuable than what I do. There is no simple, single answer to this quandary. If there were, it wouldn't be worth writing stories about. This one comes with recommendations baked in, for Rear Window and The Invisible Man. If you really want to go off the deep end, one place to turn could be To the Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon. To be honest, I kind of hated this book when I read it, which, to all the Pynchon fanatics out there, does not mean I didn't get it. But if you're caught up by these issues about how coincidences and mysteries are used in writing, and how works of art get discussed inside works of art, Lot 49 will definitely add more questions onto that pile, and probably not give you any easy answers. Thanks for listening. The music is by David Hillowitz, the book is by Blue Balliette, the opinions are by me. For the next episode, I'll be rereading Nancy Drew, The Secret of the Old Clock by Carolyn Keene. Talk to you then. Thank you.